Okay, and so we want to welcome our live stream audience who is with us as well. And this is, I believe, the 10th evening of the Real Jesus Bible Study. And again, what we've been doing is taking the book of John. And what I did was I spent, at this point, nine months. <laughs> I've been, I'm pregnant. I'm giving birth. I've spent nine months with the book of John, reading it and pulling out just what do I learn about Jesus? Not what do I learn about assurance of salvation or what do I learn about demon spirits or what do I learn about intercession, but what do I learn about Jesus? Because people need Jesus. We can debate all the other stuff, but the most important thing is Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He was the Son of God. He was raised from the dead. And if you believe in that, you'll have eternal life. You may not get it right on assurance of salvation or how many days of creation or evolution, but if you believe in Jesus... It doesn't say you have to get the rest of it exactly right. There are times I say, thank you, God. You can use me even if my theology is a bit off. But I believe in Jesus. I did want to share one thing real quickly. I've been down at my father's house. He lives about three hours, get my topography correctly, west of here on 74 in, near Wadesboro. And I've been staying with him some in the country. And my grandmother died about three years ago. So I've been going over to her house and just cleaning out some things. And I found this little notebook. You know, nobody else has wanted it, but I grabbed it and looked at it. And she was a Methodist, and she loved Jesus, and she taught Sunday school, which is kind of like teaching Bible studies. And here is one from 9-26-1993. I believe that's 25 years ago. Is today the 26th? 25 years ago today, this is my grandmother's Sunday school notes. This is my heritage. And my great-grandfather, I found this. This is about the Jewish hope. It's about how the Jews need Jesus, too. And so they believed, they loved the Jews. He loved the Jewish people. And so that encouraged me so much. And I'm collecting her Barclay commentaries. I hope Barclay is good. I'm collecting her Barclay commentaries. And so I'm just excited to have that part of my spiritual heritage. It's part of who I am. So let's review. Jesus in his own words. So these are the seven I am statements in the book of John that Jesus makes about himself. And last week we did on the bread of life, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. So you get a the theme. This is our theme sign. It's kind of warped after 10 weeks. Actually, a little more than that. Jesus is the Christ, believe and live. That's the theme of the book of John, and it comes out of John 20, 31, where he said, many other signs Jesus performed, but these were written, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. So we talked a whole lot about life last week. We also talked about the woman in the well and how Jesus declared for the first time, recorded in Scripture, that he was Messiah to her. He said, I am he. She said, we know Messiah is coming, and he said, I am he. So I include that in the I am's. And tonight we're going to look at um, John 10, I'm the door, the good shepherd, John 15, which is where Ayer's song came from, Abide. And then we're going to look at Jesus saying he was God. So I added those two. So we've got nine total, the seven normal ones, I am he, I'm the Messiah, and he says, I am God. So let's start with light. He says, I'm the light of the world. And some of these I have a little more information on. We're going to spend a lot of time in John 10. So I just have a little bit about I'm the light of the world. What is light? 
So light refers to visible light. It's the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see with our eyes. And so I do have a bad joke. Where does bad light end up? In a prism. So I had to find a good light joke for you. In a prism. So light. <laughs> In scripture, the commentator Pink says, we've been using the Pink commentary and the Wearsby. Pink says that in Scripture, light is the emblem of true knowledge, true holiness, and true happiness, while darkness represents ignorance and error, guilt and depravity, privation and misery. And if you were here when we started our first week where we did John 1, where it basically explains Jesus' identity, in John 1, 1, and 4 and 5, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness didn't comprehend it. So, in Him was the light of men. So, when we look at Jesus' declaration about Himself and light, I just want to give you the context. If you were here on July 8th, when I um, spoke about the woman who was caught in adultery and how they drug her in front of everybody and accused her, and Jesus gave her grace, woman, your sins are forgiven, and truth, go and sin no more. That is the context of this statement that Jesus says about himself. And so this is on your handout. John eight twelve. Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus is the light of the world. And then he talks about himself being the light of the world a second time. And that's in the next chapter, in John chapter 9. And this is when he's questioned about the man who was blind from birth. And they were saying, whose sin caused that? And that is the context of his next I am statement. And he says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So he says it twice. Some of these statements we'll see that he repeats. He's the light of the world. So an interesting thing that I found when I was digging around studying this is in 1 John 1, 5, which is a cross-reference, it says God is light. So Jesus is saying, I am the light. Scripture says God is light. And if you remember, the book of John is all about the deity of Jesus. And we had the triangle the first week, and we talked about how there's God the Father and God the... Let's see if I get it right. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, but they're all God. They are all God. It's the mystery. It's the mystery of the Trinity. But when Jesus says, I am light... And scripture says, God is light. Jesus was saying, I'm God. I'm not just a mortal man. I am God. So it was a declaration of deity. And we're going to see in um, one of the next statements that it was also. So in these I am statements, he's declaring that he is God. So I would like you to turn with me to John 10. Ayers, would you mind bringing me my little water bottle? I forgot it. In my notes where it says, turn with me to, that's my cue. I need to take a sip of water. <laughs> you have to have those pauses. John 10. 
So this is called the parable of the good shepherd, and we're going to find two of these I am statements here in John 10. And Jesus opens this sermon with a very familiar illustration and one that every listener would understand, and it was sheep. Because shepherding was one of the major occupations in Palestine. They would get this. Just like if we said iPhone, you all know what an iPhone is. There, when he talks about sheep, everybody understood sheep. So I I did a little research about um, how the sheep were kept overnight. And it says the sheep pen or sheepfold was an enclosure made of rocks with an opening for the door. So it's an enclosure of rocks with an opening a single opening, which the sheep passed through when they came in for the night. And the shepherd would guard the flock or flocks, because sometimes many flocks would be housed in one sheepfold. They would guard the flocks by night by lying. I just love that. Lying across the door. Like not sitting in a chair or, or, you know, standing, a bunch of them standing, but he would lie across the door. So the pen, the sheep pen, would protect from thieves and from robbers and from savage beasts that would come and want to eat the sheep. But the shepherd entered by the gate. But if the thieves wanted to come in, they had to come in over those rocky enclosures. They couldn't come in through the gate or the door. So the false sheep, the false shepherds couldn't lead the sheep. So they would have to steal them, using deception to gain entry. So again, there could be several flocks together in that sheepfold, but each one would recognize his master's voice. Just like if if your dog was out in the hallway and all of us said, Hey, Coco, your dog would recognize your voice. So the sheep would, would recognize the voice of their shepherd. So we're going to look at John 10. Some of the key words, this is on your handout. Life, big key word in the book of John. No, voice, sheep, obviously. Thief, shepherd, and the father. So the context, and this is really important here. When, when you study scripture, you, you want to look at the context. What happened right before Jesus has this big discussion about being the door and the good shepherd? So this is where um, Jesus heals the man blind from birth, and he did it on the Sabbath, which angered the Pharisees. So they bring the man in, and they question him, and they bring in his parents and question them, and the man who was healed wouldn't deny Jesus. And so they put him out of the synagogue, and then later Jesus finds him and leads him to faith. So that's John John 9 in a nutshell. So if you look on your handout or in your word, we're going to look at John 10, starting with verses 1 through 6. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. 
A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. And this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they didn't understand what those things were which he had been saying. And continuing verses 7 through 9. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm a Methodist, so we would say the word of God for the people of God. And if you're a Methodist, then what would you say? Thanks be to God. <laughs> Greg, I thought you would hear that back there. Thanks be to God. There you go. There he is. So Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. So I loved this from the NIV commentary. It's on your handout. When the sheep returned to the fold at night after a day of grazing, the shepherd stood in the doorway of the pen and inspected each one as it entered. He anointed any who were scratched or wounded and gave water to those who were thirsty. Doesn't that make you feel good that Jesus, your shepherd, is looking over you to see where you're scratched, to see where you're wounded, to anoint you, to bring healing to you? He intimately inspects you outside, and he looks at your heart because he cares. The shepherd cared for the sheep. After all the sheep had been counted and brought into the pen, the shepherd laid down across the doorway so that no intruder, human being, or beast could enter without his knowledge. The shepherd became the door, the sole determiner of who entered the fold and who is excluded. So let's look uh, more closely at the second declaration where Jesus says, I am the door, John 10, 9. And this is in the King James. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. And I found this great, um, just great analysis of this verse. Analysis is more of an engineering term. I know there's a theological term, but I start seminary next month. I've only been to engineering school, start seminary next month. So <laughs> there's a great exposition on this verse that the pink commentary gives, and it's on your handout, and the slide's gonna be really wordy. But Jesus is the door of salvation. And I just loved this. So when he says, I am the door, he's saying, I am the only way to God. Just like John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. I am the door. By me, if any man enter. And the pink commentary just reminded me that no one comes to God unless, unless he's drawn, unless Jesus draws him. And so Jesus gives us the supernatural power to enter in and become saved. I mean, I was a, <laughs> I don't even want to go into what I was. But Jesus drew me and gave me that supernatural power to believe. If any man enter, 
Jesus welcomes both Jew and Gentile, and he's going to go into that more in depth. If any man enter in, all it takes to come to Jesus is just that one step through the door. He's the door. We're outside the pen. We're inside the pen. It's by faith. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans 10, 9, and 10. If by any man enter in, he shall be saved. The word Yahweh in the Greek, it means Yah, I'm sorry, Yeshua. It means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. He shall be saved. Jesus delivers us from the penalty, the presence, and the power of sin. And then it says, he shall go in and out. So if you're going in, and you're going out, and you're going in, well, you've got some freedom. He gives us freedom from bondage that would hold us back, that would hold us to our old ways, that would hold us in dead religion. Going in and out, that's freedom from bondage. And then it says he'll find pasture. So Jesus sustains us. He sustains us. He gives us strength. I love that. So now let's look at John 10, 16, because this is going to explain Jesus welcomes both Jew and Gentile. He says, Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. So in the Old Covenant, that was for the nation of Israel. All of those great promises, it was for the nation of Israel. God gave it to Abraham in like Genesis 12 and 15. It was for Israel. But Jesus says, I've got other sheep of this fo- that are not of this fold. Who is the fold? Well, that was the nation of Israel. It was the religion of Judaism. Who are these other sheep? It's us. If you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. It was the Gentiles. Those other sheep, it's us, the Gentiles. It says, they will become one flock with one shepherd. I'm trying to remember now which Bible study I did that had so much emphasis on one. I think it was from Hebrews. So one flock with one shepherd is his one church, both Jew and Gentile together. And a cross-reference is Ephesians 3, 6. And this is talking about the mystery. It says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then also Ephesians 2, 4, I believe it's 2, 14. For he himself is our peace who made both groups, there it is, into one. It's in Ephesians 2. And broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. So there were other sheep out there, but Jesus says, I've got other sheep that I'm going to bring into the fold. And so that's what he did when he brought the Jews and Gentiles together through his death on the cross. He reconciled us together to him and to each other. That's what Ephesians 2 says. The Wearsby commentary, and so this is why context is important, says Jesus is the door of the sheepfold and makes it possible for the sheep to leave the fold and to enter his flock. That blind, the man who was blind from birth, the Pharisees threw him out of the synagogue. But Jesus welcomed him in to the sheepfold. 
he led him out of Judaism and into the flock of God. So that's why context is important. The, the setup is some religious leaders are going to put you out, but Jesus is going to say, come, come to me. I love that. Okay, thieves and robbers. John 10, no, it's just on your handout. I got ahead of myself. John 10, 8 says, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the thieves did not hear them. So the religious leaders who came before him, and I haven't done this research, but probably even those that said they were Messiah, he said they're thieves and robbers. The sheep didn't hear them. But Jesus was primarily referring to the religious leaders of the day. Remember how he cleansed the temple in John chapter 2? He says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. They were the money changers, and they were making money off of Judaism. They were making money off of the law. They weren't true shepherds. They didn't have the approval of God on their ministry. They didn't love the sheep, but they exploited them, and they abused them. They were not true shepherds. And that blind beggar, that was a good example of what thieves and robbers would do. They, they didn't care about him, but they mistreated him. But the good shepherd took him in. And so a cross-reference, you can turn with me or you can look at your handout. Ezekiel 34, it's titled, Prophecy Against the Shepherds of Israel. In verses 2 through 5, says, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them they were scattered for lack of a shepherd and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered well i think that could be a sermon pastor tom <laughs> right there those shepherds those false shepherds they didn't strengthen the sick they didn't heal the disease they didn't bind up the broken that's all isaiah won you know that's what jesus came to do they didn't go look for the lost, they, but they dominated. They used them. And sadly, there are some religious leaders that are just out to use people and not to care for them. And, and this just reminds me, for me, you know, um, I'm growing in my ministry of public speaking, and I really have to watch my motives because a lot of times I'll need to post things on social media to let people know I'm speaking, I'm traveling, I'm available. I would love to come speak to your women's group. But at the same time, I need to make sure that my motivation isn't to build up me, but it's to do what I'm doing tonight to freely give you the word of God, to share with him, to share with you his truths. But those false shepherds, it, they were in it for themselves. Okay, so I'm going to mess with your theology for a little bit. And I, I, I am willing to be corrected. <laughs> so I'm just going to throw this out there, just something that I was thinking about last night and today. And what I want to share with you is the importance of context, okay? So we all know this verse, John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus came to give life and to give it abundantly. 
This word thief, it's in the Greek, it's kleptes. It looks like that first part of kleptomaniac. It's an embezzler, a pilferer. It's someone who steals. And in the Strong's, it says the name is transferred to false teachers who don't care, like we've talked about, but use their confidence and position for their own game. So as I was studying this, I thought, well, who's the thief? So in your mind, who's the thief? The devil. But does the Bible say anywhere that you can think of that the devil's the thief? You can go home and research. I didn't take the time to, to, to do an exhaustive study, but when I looked up the thief in my concordance, all in the Old Testament, the New Testament, I looked at that word in the Greek everywhere in the New Testament. It doesn't refer to the devil. Now, he's an accuser. He's a liar. He's, you know, the angel of light. We know those things. But I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible that says it's the thief is the devil. But what is the context here? He's talking about the false teachers. The context is those Pharisees that ex excommunicated the, blind, the beggar who was blind. So when you look in the, in the uh, commentaries, pink, the pink commentary said it was the Antichrist. The Wearsby commentary said it was Satan. The Vines um, dictionary about the word says it's false teachers. So my point is, you know, we're not going to correct anybody if you quote that verse about the enemy because he is a thief. He steals from us. I mean, he, roar, he goes about roaring like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. He prowls about. But my point is, a lot of times we quote scripture when we don't know the context. Like we'll say, I'm the head but not the tail. But you didn't read. It says, if you obey all my commandments. So we do that. So that's why we need to get in the word and look at the context and look for cross-references. When you look at John 10, 10, in my Bible, there were no cross-references for thief. Nowhere that pointed to any other use of that word. So I just wanted to mess with you a little bit just to point out that context is important. Like we always quote um, Isaiah 61, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But when you study that whole chapter out, it's about Jerusalem. That's what the chapter is about. It's about Jerusalem. So we need to just look at context. That's, your, that's one of your Bible study nuggets for tonight. That's just Lisa on her little soapbox. So, so again, these, the thief didn't enter by the gate, but he crawled over. They were the false teachers using deception. And even today, we have false teachers that deceive to build up themselves and to make money. And, and I thought of Jim Baker because I grew up in Charlotte, close to PTL, and all of that was going on. And he did build up his own kingdom. And, it, and now he has repented. He has his own. He's been to prison. He's repented. He has his own ministry, and he's following the Lord again. But there are false teachers, and so that's why we need to be wise and in the word. Okay, so let's transition to talking about the shepherd. The end of that Ezekiel 34, the prophecy against the false shepherds, God says this, Ezekiel 34, 23, then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He will feed them and be their shepherd. 
So, when you look at this, you think, well, well, that's talking about David. But David was around 1000 BC. And Ezekiel is writing during the Babylonian captivity, which is about 400 years, if I've got my math correctly. Um, let me think. It was six, what, 586, about 400 years or so after David's reign. And so it's 600 years before Jesus. So he's not talking about David because David's dead. He's talking about the king that is to come, the shepherd that is to come. Jesus is the good shepherd. That points to Jesus. Do you see? It points to Jesus. So let's move on with John 10, transitioning to the good shepherd. John 10, verses 11 through 15. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, if you think about, if you have pets, you know how much you love your pets. And imagine if you evacuated for Hurricane Florence and left a pet sitter with your pets. If the water started to rise, would that pet sitter stay? <laughs> Probably not. They wouldn't risk their lives for your pet. But if you were there, you would risk your life for your pet. And that's what Jesus is saying. There are hired hands who don't care about the sheep. But Jesus owns the sheep. He cares. And so we're going to look at this contrast between the hired hand and the good shepherd. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So there are Old Testament references to the good shepherd or to shepherds, including the one from Ezekiel. The one that we probably all know is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 80, verse 1 in the NLT, New Living Translation, says, Please listen, O shepherd of Israel, who lead Joseph's descendants like a flock. O God, enthroned above the cherubim, display your radiant glory. So Israel's shepherd was God. It says, O shepherd of Israel, O God. Do you connect the dots there? Let's see, you don't have that on your handout, but it's in the same sentence. O shepherd, O God. So Israel's shepherd was God. And now Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And so again, we see Jesus asserting his deity. We see Jesus, God the Son, saying, I'm God. Remember we talked, there's three in one. The triangle is God, but there's three sides, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When he says, I'm the good shepherd, he's saying, I am God, once again. He's the light, he's the good shepherd, and he's God. So, my next two slides are going to be very wordy, but it's on your handout. So I like to make lists when I see these things that are compared and contrasted, the shepherd and the hireling, I make lists or charts, which you know that by now. 
So let's look at the good shepherd versus the hireling. And where you see it in italics, that's what the scripture says. And then I've made the, the contrast. So verses 11 and 15, it says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But the hireling, in contrast, doesn't lay down his life. The hireling, verse 12, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. But the shepherd would stay. That's the contrast. Verse 12, because the hireling leaves, the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Don't you know when false teachers and things come into churches, the flock gets scattered. The wolf comes in and the flock gets scattered. But the good shepherd, he stays. He keeps watch. Verse 13 says, the hireling flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. And then the good shepherd says, I know my own and my own know me. So I tried to take these verses and I may, let's see, I may have found this somewhere else. I probably did. I can't remember where I found the next chart. The good shepherd versus the hireling. The good shepherd is sacrificial. The hireling is self-centered. The good shepherd is concerned. The hireling ambivalent. The good shepherd intimately knows his own. The hireling is aloof, disinterested. The good shepherd is a fierce protector, but the hireling is a fearful babysitter. The good shepherd, he's the owner, so he's invested. The hired hand, they have no vested interest. The good shepherd never abandons his own. I don't know about y'all, but lately this is what I've been telling God. God, I'm a mess right now, but I'm yours. I'm yours. <laughs> I'm yours. You, you, I'm yours. Because I've just been so distracted and all over the place with the storm and different things. I'm not where I should be in my prayer life. I'm not in the word like I should be. There have been some really bad words going through my head, but God, I am yours. I'm yours. You can't get rid of me. I'm his. He can't do anything about it. He owns me. Like my dog is the neurotic dog in the neighborhood, but she's mine. Right now, I'm, you might be God's neurotic pet too, but he's, he owns you. He's not going to leave you when you're going through a tough time, when you're focused, not focused and distracted because everything that's going on. The good shepherd cares. The good shepherd cares. The hireling doesn't care. The good shepherd protects the sheep, but the hireling, the sheep are snatched and scattered. Jesus, the good shepherd, cares. Cross-reference, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It doesn't say casting your big anxieties or your small anxieties. It says all. And I know a lot of people are... Their homes are completely flooded. Those are big anxieties. But maybe you're still cleaning out your refrigerator and it's hard. That's still your anxiety. Cast it on God. Whether it's big, whether it's small, I don't think God's a judge of anxieties. I don't think he says, oh, that one doesn't matter. Oh, this one's really important. It just says cast them all. Why? Because he cares. The good shepherd cares. 
The NIV commentary said the main concern of the hired hand was his money, was his pay. <laughs> I don't think pastors get paid very much. I thank y'all for serving. I know it's not because of the money. I know that you're not our, our pastors. These are the good shepherds. These are true shepherds. They're not just hired hands. When the flock is attacked, the hireling deserts the sheep because he won't endanger himself. The religious leaders of Israel were only interested in providing for themselves. They ate the fat. They took the money. But Jesus shares. Jesus cares. So it made me think, you know, think about your life. I'm 46. I've not been in a whole lot of churches. I could probably count one, two, three. I think this is my fifth church. It's the fifth church I've been in in 25 years. That doesn't mean I need to move on now. <laughs> I'm beyond my average, <laughs> if you say five, five years of church. But when you think about the churches you've been in, were there hired hands who scattered and fled when things started going wrong in your life? Or were there hired hands who stuck by your side and walked you through the hard times. You know, sometimes we can be too much, and, and the pastor might say, ooh, can't help with that, but, but the good shepherds, the shepherds that God has set over his house, they're going to stick with you. They're not going to flee when hard times come, just like they're not fleeing right now. Our pastors are not fleeing when the hard times come. Hard times come. And I know my pastors have walked me through some things, and then, what about you? Do you care about those you're leading? And this convicts me very much. Or are you simply a hired hand? Do you really care? Or when the people in your life, when the bad things come and they're too much, are you going to say, I, I can't go there? When your best friend comes out as transgender. You know, when your friend commits adultery. Are you going to stick with them and love them? Or are you going to say, I can't handle that? And those are just a couple off the top of my head examples. But that's a good analogy. The hired hand leaves when trouble comes, but the shepherd stays. Okay, we're going to look at this further. Continuing with John 10. Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll hear my voice. They will become, there it, is, there it is again, one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And I love this, the response to Jesus saying, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm the good shepherd. That's it. He has a demon. He's insane. I mean, if you pinch yourself really hard, it hurts. Who wants to lay down their lives for someone else? And this phrase, good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, is used four times in John 10. It's unique to the book of John. And so let's look at these four times. Let's see. So John 10, 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. 17, I lay down my life so I may take it up again. That refers to his resurrection. 10, 18, I lay it down on my own initiative. 
So I think this is important. When you see something repeated four times in a chapter, that's important. So what does it mean that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep? Romans 5, 6, and 8, 6 through 8. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what laying his life down was. That's what it was. So I want to give you a little different view on these scriptures because we've talked about this word life that's the key word in the book of John and that it's the word zoe. It'd be zoe. You have the name zoe in the Greek. But in these verses, life is a different word. It's a different Greek word. There's two Greek words used for life, zoe, and then the other one is suhe, and it looks like psyche. Okay, it looks like psyche, and I believe that's on your handout, and I've got it on the slide. Suhe is how it's pronounced. It means breath, life, the soul. And what is the soul made up of? The mind, the will, and the emotions. And I've got my journal. You can see the, maybe see the big orange star when I first got this revelation. Jesus laid down his soul for us. It means soul. Life means soul. Jesus laid down his soul for us. And I love when the commentaries tell me I'm not crazy because the NIV commentary says life implies more than physical existence. It involves personality and is more frequently translated soul. The good shepherd stands ready to sacrifice his total self for the sake of the sheep. So he didn't just give his physical body. He laid down his mind. He laid down his will. We see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, him offering his will. He laid down his emotions, his feelings. So it makes these scriptures look different when you see, I lay down my life, my mind, my will, and my emotions for the sheep. He says it four times. I lay down my soul for the sheep. So a few cross-references. And this is the challenge for us. John 13, 38, to Peter, Jesus says, Will you lay, lay down your life? It's that word, suhe. Will you lay down your life for me? And then John 15, 13, greater love has no end than this, than he lay down his life, suhe, not just the skin and bones, but the soul, the mind, the will, and emotions. If you've got a wayward child, you've been laying down your emotions for them in prayer. If you're in an argument with someone and you're willing to lay down your right to be right, well, you're laying down your mind and your will. There are times we have to lay down our will, like when my children want to go eat one place and I want to go the other. Sometimes I lay down my will, and that's a silly example. But Jesus is telling us that we need to lay down our mind, will, and emotions. Follow his example. 
1 John 3.16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life, suhe, for us, and we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren. So application. Are you following Jesus' example as the good shepherd and laying down your life for the sake of others? Are you willing to lay down your mind, your will, and your emotions? Boy, that just cuts to the quick. That, that goes one more level. One more level. He laid down his mind, his will, and his emotions for us. I love that. So, very quickly, let's um, finish up with John 10, verses 27 through 31. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And then... The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So Jesus is saying, my sheep. Here it is again, ownership. My sheep. Hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. That word know in the Greek is, I probably am not saying it correctly, but I've always called it genosko. It means to come to know, to recognize or understand, or to understand completely. It's repeated five times in John. So I believe this is on your handout. Um, I underlined it in John 10, 14 through 15. I know my own, my own know me, even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So if it means completely understand, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and I completely understand my own. I completely understand you because you're my own and my own you completely understand me now I don't feel like I'm there yet the father completely understands me Jesus and Jesus completely understands the father so Jesus knows us and we know him we know him pink commentary says each of the sheep are known to Christ by a special knowledge and then verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of his hand, the father's hand. This is a picture of me in 1992. I worked at a Christian camp that went out and we built wheelchair ramps for the elderly, for shut-ins, the poor. We built outhouses and we painted and did yard work and there's a wheelchair ramp. And that was the summer after I got saved. I'd been saved maybe nine months. And I experienced the worst, well, I experienced very bad spiritual warfare that summer. Just crazy, crazy things would happen. In this verse, John 10, 29, no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I took a big piece of cardboard that I bought at the grocery store. And I took a big Sharpie. And I wrote that and put it in the back seat of my car. And as I drove all over the county working, that reminded me, no one, even though I was going through a hard time, no one could snatch me out of his hand. 
Now, I'm not going to discuss eternal um, security, you know, assurance of salvation. I'm not going to discuss that because that's not about Jesus. <laughs> it is, but it isn't. But that's a powerful verse. My Father is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So let's look very quickly at where Jesus declares himself to be God. We've seen this before. Um, on your handout is Exodus 3, 13 through 14, and I'm going to skip it. I'm going to just get down to verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. They had said, what is, what is his name? What is God's name? And God says, thus you shall, shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So I am, that's Yahweh, the self-existent one. That was God's name. And so Jesus says in John 8, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. So God said his name was I am, Yahweh. And here Jesus is saying, I am. So he's saying, it's, it's not written God, but he's saying I'm God. He's saying, I'm God. He's, he's Jesus, God the Son, but he's saying, I am God. I am God. So I think I'm going to skip John 10, 30 through 39, just for the sake of time. I want to get to John 15. But I will just show you a summary of some of the statements where Jesus declares that he's God. John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. John 10, 36, I am the Son of God. John 10, 38, he says, the Father is in me, and I, it's not written, but it's implied, am in the Father. So he's saying he's God. A couple more that aren't on your slide, John 14, 11, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me, and he repeats that again in John 14, 20. So Jesus is saying, it's not, you know, the commentators don't list that in the I am statements of Jesus, but before Abraham was, I am. So he declares himself to be God. So in our remaining time, I want to look at John 15. So if you will turn with me to John 15. So this takes place, this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples takes place during the Last Supper. And he's told them he's going to go away. He's told them, he's comforted them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He said, I'm going to send you Holy Spirit. He tells them, my joy will be made full in you. So he gives them grace. You know, he tells them all these things he's going to do for them. But when you get to John 15... It talks about what our responsibility is in this exchange with Jesus. We learn what we're to do for him while he's gone before he takes us to heaven. So again, just like Jesus talked about sheep because they knew what sheep were, he uses the, um, the example of a vineyard. The cultivation of vineyards was very important to the economy of Israel. And so they knew exactly, if, if I said Android, you know what I'm talking about, when he said the vine, they knew just what he meant. They knew exactly how that worked. Some Old Testament references to the vine are listed on your handout. 
Hosea 10.1 in the New Living Translation says, How prosperous Israel is, a luxuriant vine loaded with fruit. So this was already an analogy that had been used in Scripture up to this point. And Jesus is going to announce that he's the true vine. So pick up with me in John 15, either on your handout or in your word. John 15, 1 through 11. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. So when I was thinking about vines, I thought about my backyard, because it's common knowledge. I think that I'm a gardener. And this is my backyard um, when Hannah and Andrew went to the prom, I think four years ago. And over the arbor, the red splotches you see, that's a honeysuckle vine. Huge honeysuckle vine at this point, and my arbors have vines over them. So I want to talk a little bit about what is fruit. And I spent a long time last night Googling, what is fruit? Because there's two definitions. There's the culinary definition of a fruit, and that's the sweet, fleshy part of a plant that we eat, like clementines and apples. But then there's the botanical definition, comes from botany, and that's different than the culinary, the cooking definition. So listen to this. The botanical definition, fruit is a seed-bearing structure. It bears seeds. And flowering plants formed from the ovary after flowering. So it's a seed-bearing structure formed after flowering. To me, the, the way I was um, writing this up was the goal of every living flowering plant is to make seed. It's going to make fruit. And eventually that fruit's going to dry up and the seed's going to go because that's what happens. And I brought some examples. I told Pastor Tom I was going to make a little bit of a mess, perhaps. This, before Florence, was a vine. <laughs> it was dried up, but I let it stay on the trellis. It's moonflower. I let it stay on there because it had the most beautiful seed pods. Um, here are some that I brought in. I have this little bowl in my kitchen where I have my seed pods. So you can see that's the fruit. This is botanical fruit, a seed-bearing structure that forms from the ovary after flowering. And I'm not going to bust that one because it's so pretty. 
And a few of these, you can shake them and hear the seeds. But if you bust them, the seeds fall out. So like after um, impatience bloom, you'll see this big fat pot, and if you bust it, the seeds go flying everywhere. These are my black-eyed Susans, and what I do is I let my plants, I let them, I don't always cut them back, but I let them go to seed. And these are black-eyed Susans, and if you just take this, once it's dried out, and you just start picking at it like that, well, those are seeds, because that makes more plants. This is the fruit. It, it, it makes seeds. That's the purpose of fruit is seed. I have just a couple more examples. This is um, the fruit of Nandina. This is the seeds. And then even pine cones bear seeds. Rose hips. When roses grow and then they bloom and you see that big thing, that's a botanical fruit. Nuts are botanical fruits. Acorns, botanical fruit, because they bear seeds. And I meant to, um, I meant to look this scripture up, and I'm, I'm growing in my confidence to quote scripture from memory. <laughs> I see Pastor Tom do it, and it's harder for me. But Jesus said that unless a seed dies, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it, re- no, help me. it remains there alone. If it falls to the ground, it remains there alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It bears much fruit. So the seed falls to the ground, and if it doesn't die, it just stays there. But if it dies, I mean, these things I'm showing you, this pine cone is dead. It's dead. That's how you get the seeds. It dies when they die. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So that's the analogy we're looking at. So what is fruit? There's a lot of different spiritual fruit that the Bible refers to. There's fruit when we win others to Christ. We're part of the harvest, like wheat. That's botanical fruit. It makes seeds. We're part of the harvest. As we grow in holiness and obedience, we're bearing fruit, Romans 6.22. The fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. Even our good works, our service, grow out of an abiding life, Colossians 1.10. So let's look more closely at what Jesus says. And you know a lot of times when I do those five W's and an H, I do it for a particular scripture, but I'm looking at the whole passage here as a whole. So it's John 15, 4 through 11, the five W's and an H, who, what, when, how, where, why. They're not always there. Who, believers, what, abide. But he tells us two places to abide. One is in Jesus. And secondly, in his love. I didn't research the difference, but he says it two different times. When, he doesn't really give a reference to that, and and I'm going to cover that in a minute. Why? This is the important part. This is why we abide in Jesus. So we can bear much fruit. And then I went through and listed on your handout all the different reasons. We glorify the, the Father by bearing fruit. It results in supernatural joy. Why do we abide? Because we can't do anything without him. And that's all in your handout. But the, the purpose of abiding is to bear fruit. It's not just to have the, oh, Jesus, this worship feels so good. <laughs> it's to bear fruit. It's to produce seeds so that others can come to know Jesus as well, so that others can follow. It's to make disciples. So Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. This, I love when Ayers saying about abiding. In the Greek, this word is M-E-N-O. 
And it means to stay in place, to remain in place, to not move away from your place. When the winds come, you stay in place. When you're confused, you stay in place. When you're hurt, you stay in place. It means to stay in place. It refers to maintaining our relationship with Jesus. Pink says it's the constant occupation of the heart with him. And I think for the sake of time, I'm going to skip this next Bible study nugget. But I'm just going to leave you with, with um, Greek verbs. There's tense, voice, and mood. And you can look at that to learn more. We learned that it's a command. It's an imperative. There's no reference to time. And so I'm going to just leave it at that because we don't really have time for that. So how do we abide? Oh, I do want to point out that to be in Christ and to abide, remember in Ephesians 1, we went through all of our riches in Christ. To be in Christ and to abide are two different things. You are always in Christ. You may not, may not always be in abiding. You always have relationship with the Father, but you may not always have good fellowship. Just like I'm in relationship with my brother, he's always my brother, but there may be times I'm not in good fellowship with him, <laughs> but I'm always in relationship. So you're always in Christ, but the command is to abide. Our abiding can be interrupted. So what does it mean to abide? Gosh, we could do a word study and an eight-week Bible study just on that. But I'm going to show you a couple things. Let's look at the cross references. John 8, 31. If you continue, that word in the Greek is the same word for abide, in my word, then you're truly disciples. So we abide in his word. 1 John 2, 5 and 6, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner that Jesus walked. So we walk as he walked. And John 14, 17 says that it's about the spirit of truth. And it says you know him because he abides with you and he'll be in you. So we're filled with the spirit. So those are just three ways. So fruitfulness is the result of, of abiding. It's an extraordinary life with extraordinary impact. Extraordinary life. All those seeds are going to bear fruit. That impacts our world around us. And when I read this passage, I was just so overwhelmed that if I just remain in Jesus, if I just abide in Jesus, then I can impact the world around me just by being me. Because yesterday, I was thinking as I was out and about, being my normal, at times, ditzy, somewhat blonde self, I thought, God, you just created me to entertain people, <laughs> you know? I do some of the craziest things, but God created me to give joy to people. And so as I abide and go about my day with God, I bring joy to people. And that's a fruit of the Spirit. That's fruit. I may feel really stupid doing it sometimes, but it's fruit. It's living water that flows out of us. So Jesus says he's the true vine, but his father is the, the vine dresser. Every branch that do, doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So in my garden, I leave some of those things to go to seed, but normally I'm cutting back. 
These are my good pruners. I'm deadheading. Because if I cut back where the sage bloomed and don't let it go to seed, then more sage blooms. So the more you cut back, the more flowers you get, the more fruit you get, the more seeds you get. So the Father prunes the vine so that we can grow more. So really, so you can flower. Like I do it for my hummingbirds because they like the flowers. If I cut it back, it's going to flower. So Jesus is the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Let's see. I don't really have time to go into this, but the, the pink commentary, I was going to read it, talks about part of this pruning is cleansing us with his word. It's not always the really painful things. There are painful things, but part of it is cleansing us with his word. And Jesus says in the next verse, you are already clean because of the word. There we have it. It's in the context. Part of it is cleansing us with his word. But sometimes when when God prunes, it hurts. (laughs) I brought my neighbor's lopper. She loaned these to us because we lost um, some vines over an arbor. And when you're pruned with stuff like this, it hurts. And I had a friendship in this church um, years ago, and she was one of my best friends. And when she left this church, it hurt. It hurt. It was like somebody had taken a big day lily and cut it down the middle. And she got moved here, and I got moved here. But then what happened? As God pruned that relationship, and I was suddenly not under her umbrella, well, I began to grow, and I began to bloom. And I was allowed to lead a ladies' ministry, and then I was allowed to teach Bible studies, and then I was allowed to preach. Now I'm going to seminary. Now I'm speaking. But if I had just stayed right there and hadn't been pruned, those things probably wouldn't have happened, maybe. But God prunes us to bear fruit, and it hurts. Sometimes when he removes a relationship, sometimes when you lose a job, sometimes when you have to move, it hurts. So the Father positions and prunes us for faithfulness, but our sole responsibility is just to abide. We abide, he prunes. Sometimes he chastens us. So application this could go anywhere you want it to do to go, but what steps are you taking to abide? How are you working on abiding in Christ to stay in place? How are you growing your roots deep so that you can stay in place, so that you can flower and bear fruit and produce seeds and then reproduce? So that would be your application. So as I close... Gosh, thank you, Pastor Tom, for letting me teach this. It's been nine months that I've worked on this, and and it's been amazing. And I've grown, and I hope that you've grown. And I don't know what's next. For the Father in me, it's like it used to be that I could see a little bit of what's coming, but now I can't even see past here. I just know I'm going to seminary next month, and that's all I know. And so, uh, so I'm just trusting him. And I do want to thank you for praying for me the other week. My back is much better. The surgery has been postponed. I'm feeling a lot better. I'm still doing physical therapy, but I am doing so much better. I'm not medicated tonight. Praise the Lord. I feel good. I don't need all those medications. I feel great. So thank you for that. So, Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, for how you described yourself 
we thank you that, that you are God. That we've learned that you are God. You're the Son of God. You give life. We've learned all the gifts that, we, that you give us. We've seen your humanity. And now we've learned how you described yourself as the way, the truth, and the life. As the good shepherd, the door, the Messiah. And we just worship you. And I pray that, that we would abide that we would bear fruit, that we would produce seeds and reproduce, and that we would glorify you, and that others would come into the kingdom. And I just thank you that there will be a day when we will all be reunited. You promise us in John that you go to prepare a place for us. And so we thank you that we will be reunited with you, Jesus, again. And I thank you for that promise in the book of John. And I just bless these that have come, bless those that are on the live stream and those that are serving in other places. We just thank you for your grace and your goodness and for life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. I have personally really enjoyed her gift of teaching. It's nice to be able to sit here and get a different perspective on things. So Thank thank you for investing in us. It's awesome. Well, praise God, we finish up, and uh, this has been really awesome. Next uh, two Wednesday nights, we'll be here, and Mary Esther is going to be teaching us. And so she's going to come with a different perspective. She's been studying a book about the bride, and I'm just excited to see about what that's going to be all about, too. So, And then um, we've got a busy October coming for a lot of us. Most of the pa- all of the pastors are going to be up at Voice of the Apostles. So um, Terry has arranged for Walter Goey. To come in after uh, Mary Esther teaches two Wednesday nights, we'll have three Wednesday nights of, of Walter Goey, so that's going to be exciting. He's, he was here earlier in the spring, and uh, he is just another one of those that comes at it from a different perspective on teaching, so you'll enjoy that as well. So, um, well, let's stand. I want to thank the Lord for what he's doing. We're on the other side of the storm. We're shifting from uh, into really supporting people's needs, and so... That scripture, and I just roll in that whole thing about First John three sixteen, about we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. I want you to get a hold of that. There is such an opportunity right now for the kingdom of God to shine. We had black, white, Spanish, male, female pastors on the phones crying out, praying with people. And there's such a, we're putting teams together uh, with Pastor Campbell's church, and we've got other opportunities. We're linking up with other churches. God, I just thank you that you have allowed us to abide in you. And this storm, it's going to, this Florence is a, it means flourishing. I don't know how that's all going to flourish, but I know that the kingdom is advancing. People are being touched. People that you would never, ever cross paths with. They're humbled, they're in a place of need. And we're opportunists now to be able to bring that kingdom blessing to them. So, Lord, let that scripture come alive in us. I pray that your, your people would get away from where they are focused and get out and focus on the brethren and lay down our lives. And they say, can you go a mile? Go too. Give me your coat. Give me your jacket too. Lord, I pray that that would be the, 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 the mark of this kingdom group of people here in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa.